thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Last week when we started Acts chapter 13, I shared there was a significant turning point in the book of Acts that we shifted from Jerusalem church being the kind of focus to now the church in Antioch is the focus. And we see something new in Acts chapter 13. We now have the missionary focus, the missionary mindset. The church in Antioch is the first church to send out purposefully missionaries to reach other people with the gospel. And the two missionaries that they sent out are Paul and or Saul, as his name was then, and Barnabas. And the first place that these missionaries go to is the island of Cyprus, to the cities of Salimus and Paphos. And as we come to verse 13 this morning, we're going to see another important turning point, but also a significant event in this early portion of this first missionary endeavor. And so let's start with looking at the significant turning point and this significant event here in Acts chapter 13 starting in verse 13 it says this now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos they came to Perga in Pamphylia and John departing from them returned to Jerusalem now notice we're told now when Paul and his party set sail Now, this is very significant because just a few verses earlier here in this chapter, it was Barnabas and Saul went out on this missionary journey. And now all of a sudden we see a turning point, a change. Now it's basically Paul, no longer Saul, but it's also kind of Paul's team. He's kind of the leader of it. And from this point in time in Acts all the way to the end, this is going to be the case. Paul's going to be the head of the missionary team, and he's going to take this trip, then he's going to take another trip, and he's going to take another trip. Uh, But we see a significant turning point here where Paul is kind of taking on this uh, very significant leadership role. And so Paul and and Barnabas and and John John Mark, the gospel writer of Mark, they they left Cyprus and they sailed to Perga. Now you remember, uh, as we looked at before, uh, John Mark joined the team when they were in Cyprus, uh, in Salamis, uh, and so he's been ministering with them for a little bit of time, but now we're told when they get to Perga, something significant happens, he leaves. He leaves the missionary team, he leaves the missionary endeavor, and he goes to Jerusalem. Now, we're not given the details of why he departed. There's all sorts of speculation. But one thing we are sure of is in Acts chapter 15, Paul wasn't happy about it. Notice what said, Acts chapter 15, verse 38. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia, speaking of Mark, and had not gone with them to the work. Paul felt abandoned by Mark, and so we recognize that this wasn't some clear call of God of, you know what, Mark, you need to be in Jerusalem. You know, Mark abandoned the missionary endeavor. He abandoned Paul and Barnabas on this trip, and I can understand here in Acts chapter 15, Paul's heart. I can understand his frustration. You know, if someone, you know, abandons you or someone that you put trust in who commits something, kind of walks away from you, uh, you know, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're allowing them to do that again, you 
You know, in ministry, I've seen this a lot. I had this personally happen to me as a pastor of people coming saying, hey, we're committed to this or that. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they take on these roles and then, you know, just a little bit of time in, they kind of walk away from that and abandon that. As a missionary, I saw very common over in Scotland, people say, you know, oh, we're here for five years or 10 years or we're here for life. The average missionary lasted six months. And so they came and they abandoned the work. They walked away from it. And so I can understand the frustration that Paul would feel of, we're not taking him again. We're not bringing him on this next missionary journey. He left us the last time and we're not going to be put in that situation. We're not going to depend on him just so he can let us down. But you know what? I'm also sympathetic to Mark. Because anyone who's done ministry realizes you come to a point in time in ministry where you realize it's hard, where you realize it's difficult, and there's those thoughts of giving up. There's those thoughts of quitting. There's those thoughts of walking away, and oftentimes people do. As I mentioned, you know, over in Scotland, people only usually last six months before they give up on missionary work there. You know, I know there have been several times as a pastor where I felt like giving up. I felt like, you know, this isn't worth it anymore. I'm going to go find something else to do with my life because, you know, ministry has a lot of highs. You know, when people are getting saved, when people are growing in the Lord, you know, that's one of the greatest blessings when you're doing ministry of watching people grow, watching people come to know Christ. But it also has a lot of lows. You know, when people are attacking you and your family, when people are walking away from God, when people are rejecting the gospel, when, when people you know, start following Christ and then they go back into living a worldly lifestyle and you're trying to encourage them and you just see their life fall apart, you know, those are the lows of ministry. And you know, I've experienced a lot of that in ministry, of, of watching people reject the gospel, of watching people you know, kind of fall away from the Lord. And, you know, but the hardest one is when you're pouring into people day in and day out, you're loving on them, and they personally start attacking you and then they start attacking your family you know I've had people share lies about me and my family and you know those types of things you're just like forget this you know let's go on and do something else those are the times when you're just like maybe I'm going to find something else to do and so I can understand from Mark's perspective and, and ministry being hard of those thoughts of giving up and desire to give up and obviously he chose to do that and so I have some sympathy on him for that and you know I think all of us, we, we do ministry, we do things that God's called us to do, and we get to those points in times where, you know, it's a struggle to continue because of the difficulty. And, you know, I think something very important to understand about ministry is the reason that you should get involved, the reason that you should come do ministry wherever God is leading you to do it, the reason that you should go on the mission field or go some other place to do ministry, ultimately is because God called you. And on the other side of that, the reason that you should leave the ministry that God's called you to do, whether it's locally or whether he sends you somewhere else, is because God's called you to leave. I think sometimes we make this more complicated than we need to. You should only start doing the ministry because God calls you, and you should only stop doing the ministry because God calls you. That should really be the ultimate reason why we do or why we don't do it. You know, when I would share with people about our ministry in Scotland, when we would do that, we'd come back to the States, and, and oftentimes they'd ask about the culture and kilts and the weather, and, you know, I'd tell them, you know, it rains 300 days out of the year. And then a lot of them would say, why'd you go to Scotland if it rains 300 days out of the year? And my thoughts are, I didn't go to Scotland for the climate. You know, if I was just wondering, yeah, Lord, I'm going to go to Hawaii. I'm only going to go to somewhere that's nice and that's really near the beach. And I mean, no, I chose to go to Scotland for one main reason, one main reason only. God called me there. 
And that's why I went. It wasn't like, well, yeah, you're right. It's 300 days a year. Maybe I should go find somewhere sunny to go minister. But, you know, when Jenny and I came here, um, a similar thing happened. We shared with people about Pasadena. Oh, you don't want to go to Pasadena? And Pasadena stinks. It's poor. It's this. It's that. There are all these, like, negative mindsets. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going for any of those things. I'm going for one reason and one reason alone. God's called me to go. And the only reason I'm going to leave, just like when I left Scotland, was because God called me to do that, and it's just having that mindset of we go because God calls us to, we leave because God calls us to leave, but, you know, sometimes we're not faithful. Sometimes we don't do it. Like Mark, he abandoned what he was called to do, and I want to share an encouragement with you instead of just like, man, Mark, what's going on? Because we just see this so often through people in the Bible. We see it so often through our own lives when we're unfaithful to what God has called us to do, but you know what? The thing that I'm encouraged by is that even though Mark here is unfaithful, God still is able to forgive him, able to restore him, able to use him again. And you know another thing that God was able to restore? The relationship between Paul and Mark. Because as we're going to see when we get to Acts chapter 15, there's quite a serious rift that happens because of what Mark did. But God was able to restore that. And I want you to note, this is the end of Paul's life, and he's writing to Timothy. And notice what he says in 2 Timothy 4.11. Get Mark, speaking of the same individual, and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. A change of heart. God's worked in Mark, God's done a restoration he's been using and a change of heart in Paul and that relationship now restored to how it was before. And, you know, that's just something that God can do. And so if you've been unfaithful with what the Lord has called you to do, don't think, well, God's done with me now. He'll never be able to use me. Just confess it. Lord, I apologize for being unfaithful and I want to be available to you and he will restore you and he will use you and we can have Mark as a good example of the Lord doing that. So Mark's now left the mission team, so it's gone from three people to two. Now it's just Paul and Barnabas, and they leave where they were in Perga, and now they go north to Antioch in Pisidia. And when they get there, as the custom was of Paul, he loved to go into the Sabbath meetings where the Jews were. And they're sitting there in the Sabbath meeting and the reading of the law happens and the meeting's going as it normally does. And then all of a sudden, the leaders who are there in the synagogue, notice what they say to Paul and Barnabas. They say, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Here now we have this wonderful opportunity that Paul and Barnabas are presented with. They're sitting in the synagogue, you know, waiting just to kind of share with people. And then, boom, the leaders say, hey, you know what? You can address everybody. Do you have any word of exhortation for the people here? Now, I want you to notice something. Paul and Barnabas, as they're given this great opportunity, they're ready for it. They're ready. Oh, you're going to let me exhort the people? Boom, here I am. I'm ready to do it. If I were to call on one of you right now, I were to ask you to come up here, stand behind the microphone, and give an exhortation to all of us, would you be ready to do that? I see a few looks of fear on people's face. Don't worry, I'm not going to call anybody up. But I just want you to be thinking about that. Like When the opportunity arises for you to share with people God's word, for you to communicate that, would you be ready to do it? You know what? There's two verses that really challenge us with this in the scripture. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Preach the word. Be ready 
in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. First three, Peter 3.15 says, Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We should always be ready to encourage people with the word of God. Always be ready to give a response, an answer for the hope that we have. Why do we have this hope in Jesus? Why are we followers of Jesus? We should be ready when people ask that of us to respond with those things. When Paul got the opportunity to exhort the people, he didn't say, you know, guys, I'm not prepared. What about if I come back next Sabbath and I'll be all ready, I'll be all studied up, I'll be prepared to share with you. No, he was ready at the moment when the opportunity arose. And we need to be ready to do that as well. And I'm not saying you have to have some great, wonderful sermon prepared, but be ready to give a defense for the hope that you have. You know, as we're out in the park and someone says, well, why are you a Christian? Well, why are you a follower of Jesus? Can you give a reason to them of why you've chosen to accept Christ, of of why you follow him? We should, as Christians, be ready to communicate that to this world who's asking that of us. And as you're studying the Bible and the Lord is teaching you things, be ready to communicate that. Be ready to exhort people with the things that the Lord is showing you in his word. So Paul is ready to exhort those who are there at the synagogue. And he's going to share a great sermon with us. And, and really there's going to be three main things within this sermon that Paul is going to focus on. First, preparation. Second, declaration. And third, application. And as we go through this, I'll expound on each one of these things. But, but let's just start with who Paul is addressing this sermon to. In verse 16, we're told... Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So Paul's addressing two common groups that were there in the synagogue. First, men of Israel, which were Jewish people. Uh, And obviously the Jews would go to the synagogue. This was a common thing. But also those who fear God. I've mentioned before that Cornelius was in that category of God-fearer. Gentiles who feared God. They haven't converted to Judaism, but yet they did believe in the God of the Bible. They feared God. They were open to these things. And so you have those who were Jewish, who were following Judaism, and then you have these God-fearing Gentiles who were there, and this is the group that Paul gets to share with. And so now he starts his sermon, and he's going to start with focusing on preparation. Notice what he says starting in verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterwards, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, whom will do all my will. So Paul starts this sermon sharing some significant events in the history of the nation 
of Israel. And he shares some of the most important parts of that, and he shares it in chronological order as they happen. And he's leading up to a main point, but let's just kind of start here with what he shares here. And I threw a, a little timeline here. Of He starts with, all right, God chose the patriarchs, the forefathers, speaking of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, his son Isaac, Jacob, these forefathers. God chose them. And then he shares about God delivering the nation of Israel from the land of Egypt. And then how God put up with them. Remember 40 years of whining in the wilderness that they did? God puts up with them, provides for them in the wilderness for 40 years. And after the wilderness experience, God enables them to enter the promised land. But the only way that can happen is because God destroys their enemies. Those who are occupying the land, God destroys so that they can go in and occupy it themselves. And as they dwelt in the promised land, God gave them judges to rule them. And that happened for 450 years, all the way up to the time of Samuel the prophet. And at that time, the nation of Israel asked God for a king. We want a king like the other nations. So God says, fine, here, you can have Saul. And he gives them Saul. Saul reigns for 40 years, and if you know, you know, the Bible, Saul did some pretty silly, sinful things, and and God removes Saul from the kingship. And he gives it to David. And he says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So Paul's been sharing how how God's worked through Israel. Look, he chose our forefathers. He delivered us from slavery in Egypt. Uh, He then put up with us in the wilderness for 40 years. He conquered our enemies. He gave us the promised land. He gave us judges. He gave us prophets. He gave us kings. Ultimately, finally, King David. And now he's going to bring us to the culmination of this. Why are you giving us this history lesson, Paul? What's the point of what you're trying to say? Well, he's going to get there now in verses 23 through 25. It says this, from this man's seed, speaking of David, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. And as John was Finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. So Paul says, From King David's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Through the line of David, through the lineage of David, came the Messiah, the King, the Savior, Jesus. And this was something that was promised in the Old Testament. They were waiting for the promised Messiah. 315 different prophecies speaking of the Messiah and how he would live and what he would do and where he'd be born and how he would die. They were anticipating and waiting for this promised Savior, this promised Messiah. And God did what he planned to do and promised to do to the nation of Israel over and over in the New Testament. He sent the Messiah. He sent Jesus, the Savior, and he sent him through the line of David. But right before God sent Jesus the Savior, he sent one final prophet. That prophet was John the Baptist. And notice John the Baptist's purpose was to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. He told people to repent. He had a message of repentance, a message of preparation. Prepare them for Jesus' coming so that they're ready to receive their Messiah, ready to receive their Savior. And at the end of John the Baptist's ministry, people were asking him, are you the Messiah? Is it you? And he says, no, it's not me. He's coming. 
And he's so much greater than me that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And you might think, well, that's kind of an odd statement. Well, actually, to them, it wouldn't have been because uh, disciple, uh, you know, teachers who had disciples, they, they were basically able to kind of treat them how they wanted and make them do all sorts of different things. And they finally came up with a set of rules that there are certain things beneath those who follow these rabbis. And one of them was it is beneath the follower of a rabbi to untie someone's sandals because that was the, the, the servant who had to clean people's feet, kind of the lowliest servant. That was his role. And so you couldn't do that. You couldn't say, hey, untie my sandals. No, that, that, that's beneath me uh, as, your, as your follower. That was kind of the common thought. And John said, you know what? I'm not even worthy to do that. You know, as, as we say, we won't even allow these, these followers to do that. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal straps. That's how much greater Jesus is than I am. The point that Paul is making is the beginning of the message is all about preparation, All that God was doing through Israel's history was preparing them and pointing them to the coming Messiah, Savior, Jesus. All of this was pointing to God's ultimate plan, which is to bring the Savior through the nation of Israel. So Paul shares these key events, but notice they're all pointing to one ultimate culmination, and that is Jesus coming to fulfill the prophecies, to fulfill these things. God did all these things leading up to Jesus. And the nation of Israel was a key part of this. Abraham all the way to David, and David through his line, ultimately the Messiah is born to come live a sinless life and give his life. And the final prophet that God sends before Jesus is John the Baptist. And what's his purpose? To prepare. Prepare people to receive the Savior, the Messiah. So as Paul starts his message focusing on preparation, All that God was doing through Israel's history was preparing them for the promised Messiah, preparing them for the Savior. But now he wants to declare, he's going to move from preparation to declaration. Now that they understand, throughout your history, God's been preparing you for the arrival of your Messiah, the arrival of your Savior, the arrival of Jesus. I have something very important to declare to you. Let's see what he declares, starting in verse 26. He says this, Men and brethren... Sons of the family of Abraham and those who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. Paul starts this declaration, hey, all this leading up, all our history has been pointing to this one important event, Jesus' arrival, the Messiah's arrival. You know what, guys? I want to declare something very important to you. To you, the word of this salvation has been sent. I'm declaring that this message of salvation has been sent to you. You are the privileged hearers of this wonderful news of salvation. Well, now he's going to declare what the Jews did to Jesus and why. And the why, I think, is something that's significant to note, starting in verse 27. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Notice the reason that Paul ultimately gives for why the Jews killed their own Messiah. Well, why would they do that? Why would they crucify their own Messiah? What would be you know, the reason that they would do that? And as we look through the Gospels, we saw their jealousy. We saw other things. But Paul kind of sums it up in something that's kind of deeper than that. He says, because they didn't know Jesus, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. 
The reason that they did it is because they didn't know the scriptures. I mean, imagine this. Every Sabbath, they read the prophets. They read all this stuff that was pointing to Jesus. They read about you know, who Jesus would be. As I mentioned, there are 315 Old Testament prophecies. Speaking of Jesus, they could have said, well, wait, he filled that? He fulfilled this? He fulfilled that? He fulfilled this? This is our Messiah. It's so obvious. He fulfilled all 315 of these. They should have known who Jesus was because the scriptures reveal clearly who the Messiah would be. And Paul's saying they didn't know the scriptures. That was their problem. They didn't know Jesus because they didn't know the scriptures that clearly revealed who he was, what he would do, how he would live, how he would die. But you know what? He says something else. They fulfilled the scriptures in condemning Jesus. Not only did they not know the scriptures, but in condemning Jesus, it was a fulfillment of scripture because the Old Testament said that was going to happen. So in doing that, it was just a fulfillment of what the Bible clearly said would transpire, would take place. And so they crucified Jesus. And after he's killed, he's removed from the cross and he's placed in a tomb. So Paul starts with declaring, this is what you Jews Jerusalem, who were there at the time of Jesus, you rejected the Messiah because you didn't know the scriptures, you crucified him, and then he was placed in the tomb. So Paul starts declaring what they did. Now he's going to move on to what God did. Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep or died, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Notice how Paul starts this off. This is what happened to Jesus. This is why they did it to Jesus. They crucified him. They placed him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. You know, those two words are two of the best words that you see in the Bible. You have men and women doing sinful things, screwing up their lives, screwing up the world. And then all of a sudden we see these two wonderful words, but God. All this mess happens because of our sin, but God does something wonderful and glorious in spite of what has transpired. You know, if you just want to do a fun study through the scriptures, I would just encourage you just to look through scripture and look at these two words, but God. And watch all the significant things you see happen because of that. Let me just give you a couple of examples that are just nice to note. If you remember in Genesis 50, this is Joseph. His brothers had sold him into slavery. And he says, but as for you, you meant evil against me. You sold me into slavery because you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Here's an evil intent to destroy my brother. But yet God takes that and uses it to save all of Israel and also the Egyptians as well. Psalm 73, 26, for my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful. 
who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Ephesians 2, this is one of my favorites, 3 through 5. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Even before this, this description of what we were like in our sinful state, how horrible we were, but now look what we're told in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Here in Acts chapter 13, we have another one of these great but God moments. They crucified Jesus. They lay him in a tomb dead, but God raised him from the dead. People did their best to fight against God. They even killed him. But God was greater than their sin, greater than their rebellion, and he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. So Paul starts by declaring this wonderful truth, but God raised Jesus from the dead. But then he goes right into saying, and you know what? This isn't just something I'm throwing out there. There's evidence to back this up. Notice what he says in verse 31. Jesus was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses to the people. Jesus was raised and people saw him alive after he was killed. There's witnesses of this, plenty of eyewitness testimony. Actually, uh, in 1 Corinthians, he said there was over 500 people at one time who saw the risen Christ. He wants us to realize this is a fact that could be proved in a court of law. This is something that actually happened. There's evidence to back it up. And then he goes on in verse 32 to say, And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. Paul says, I want to declare to you guys glad tidings. I have good news to share with you. The promise of the Messiah, the one that you guys know about, that we've always read about in the Old Testament, let me tell you, that promise of the Messiah that he would come and save the world from their sin, God has fulfilled this in Jesus Christ as he gave his life on the cross and then God raised him from the dead to conquer sin and death. God has fulfilled the promise that he said he would by sending the Messiah to save the world from their sins. And then Paul goes on to quote Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 16-10 to show that this was always in the Old Testament. This was always God's plan. His plan was always that he would send his son to die and that he would raise him from the dead. And that Jesus would stay risen forever, never to see corruption. Well, now Paul is going to finish this declaration, sharing the most important point of all. He's building, he's building. Now notice what he says in verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that, though Jesus, that through Jesus is the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Paul brings it all back to the main point. I'm sharing everything. It's all pointing to the thing I want you to know the most. And that is through Jesus and Jesus alone is the forgiveness of sins. There's no other way to receive forgiveness of sins. It's only through Jesus. It's only through the Messiah. It's only through the one that God has sent to pay for our sin on the cross. It's only through him that your sins can be forgiven. He goes on to say something else that's very important. And by Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from all things, notice, which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You see, they're living under the law. They're part of you know, the Judaism and, and the, the legal system that, hey, you do these works, you do these works, you do these works. And he says, you know what? 
Those works aren't able to justify you. They can't make you righteous before God. They can't give you that right standing just as if you never sinned. The only way to receive that is through belief in Jesus. The only way to receive that is to accept the work that Jesus did on the cross for your sin, not depend on your own work. Not say, God's going to forgive me because I've done this, 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 and this. No, our works can't save us. Only believing in the work that Jesus did will justify us, will save us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a wonderful passage says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, not by our works, but by the work that he did that we place our faith in. So Paul starts this sermon focusing on preparation. All that God was doing through Israel's history was preparing them for the promised Messiah, preparing them for the Savior Jesus. And then he transitions from preparation to declaration. He declares the good news that Jesus, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, came and died for our sins and rose from the dead. And it's only through Jesus that we can be saved from our sin and justified through that. Well, now Paul's going to finish his sermon by transitioning from this great declaration to application. He wants to challenge them, what are you going to now do? I declare this wonderful news that it's through Jesus and Jesus alone that salvation comes and it's offered to you. You can receive it. And now he wants to help them make a wise choice. Notice how he ends in verse 40 and 41. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one will declare it to you. Paul here in his application point of his sermon gives a warning. A warning to say you you need to make a choice, but you need to make a wise one. You need to choose Jesus. You need to choose to accept him. You need to choose to believe in the work that he's done for you. And the warning is beware lest you... What has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Now, there's a specific prophecy, specific thing in Habakkuk that Paul quotes that they would have been familiar with. He says, Behold, you are despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. You see, this warning in Habakkuk's day was regarding the judgment that God was going to bring upon the nation of Israel. A judgment that came because they didn't believe that God would do it. And Paul's warning here is, hey, listen, if God's willing to judge Israel for not believing in the work that he declared, he's also going to judge you if you refuse to believe in the work of Jesus Christ. If you refuse to believe in that, his judgment will be upon your sins. There's only one way to escape his judgment and receive forgiveness, and that is to accept Christ. You know, when you share the gospel, I like what Paul does here. He, he, he gets the people to a point where he says, you need to make a choice. And oftentimes we'll just share the gospel and walk off or just say, okay, that's nice. But, you know, it's great to finish with challenging the listener. You need to now make a choice. You've heard the message. You realize you either choose Jesus or you reject Jesus. You either accept what he's done for you or you reject what he's done for you, but you can't be undecided. And and people like to sit in that kind of undecided place of, ah, I'm not really going to make a decision 
on that. Well, if you don't make a decision, then you've decided to reject him. Because the only way you can accept him is if you make a decision to accept him. And not making a decision to accept him is ultimately a decision to reject him. There's no undecided. It's like an elevator. You're either going up or down. You know, you can only be for Jesus or against him. And so it's great for us to leave them with, hey, you need to make a decision here. Are you going to choose him or not? And give them that opportunity. Hey, I'll pray with you. Do you want to do that? I want to give you that opportunity to do that because, you know, the enemy loves it when we just kind of let them sit and fester and they're at a point where the Spirit of God's working on their heart and they're ready to receive. And it's like that's the time we say, do you want to make a decision for Christ? Do you want to choose him right now? Now's your opportunity to do that. And I think as we share the gospel with people, let's do that. Let's give them that opportunity. Let's share with them, hey, right now you can make a choice to follow and accept Jesus. So Paul shares this great sermon focusing on these three things. First, preparation. All that God was doing through Israel's history was preparing them for the promised Messiah and Savior. He transitions from preparation to declaration. He declares the good news that Jesus, the Messiah, came and died for our sins, rose from the dead. It's only through him that we'll be saved and justified. And then he moves to application. Challenges his listeners to accept Jesus, to not reject him. Because if they do... They'll be judged for their sins. It's only by accepting Jesus that you receive forgiveness of their sins. And so, boom, this opportunity, spare the moment. Are you willing to exhort the people? Paul gets up and does a great exhortation, shares this sermon, but now it's left with his listeners. How are they going to respond? He's shown it. He shared it with them. He's given them a challenge to accept Jesus. So let's see how they respond to this sermon and declaration that Paul gives. Verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So first notice the response of the Jews. You know, that was the main group that was there in the synagogue, Jewish people. And we're told that many of the Jews... Devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. There were many who believed and they accepted the gospel and they started following Paul and Barnabas. But but also notice this other group, this group that actually wasn't even in the synagogue, this group of Gentiles. Remember, there's those God-fearing, very small percentage of Gentiles that were allowed. But for the most part, most of the Gentiles weren't in the synagogue and they're there. They didn't even get to hear the message, but they're begging that they would get to hear it the next Sabbath. Paul, preach these words to us. We want to hear these words. What an open door that he's there and there's this group of people like, we want the message. Please share the message with us the next Sabbath, so a week from now. Now, we see these two great responses But, you know, things are going to change, and then we see this pattern through Acts. You know, they're going to go to a place, and people are going to accept the gospel, and you see, oh, this is so great, but there's also always a negative response. There's always something the enemy tries to do to stop the work that the Lord is doing in the hearts and lives of people. And so it starts off great. People are getting saved. The Gentiles want to hear the message. But let's see what happens now. Verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Well, it starts off with another wonderful thing. The next Sabbath comes, and man, this normal crowd, which would have just a smaller crowd of Jews in the Sabbath, man, it's a huge crowd of Gentiles who have shown up. And we're told by Luke that almost the whole city, 
So this isn't some small group. I mean, almost a whole city of Gentiles shows up to hear the message. Now, I want you to picture those who are the leaders of the synagogue, those who weekly are going in there and weekly seeing the, the, the smaller crowd that's there. Paul and Barnabas show up. They teach once. And the next Sabbath, man, the whole city comes out to listen to the message. And these guys respond with envy. They're jealous. Man, we don't get these crowds. We've been here, man, who knows how long, doing this for who knows how long. And we get the same group this whole time. Man, these guys come and one teaching, the next time they come out, the whole city is wanting to hear. Instead of being excited for what God's doing, they're envious, and it leads to them responding in a very negative way. They start contradicting Paul, blaspheming, and opposing the things spoken by him. Now, if you remember earlier in this chapter, Paul has an open door with a Roman, and the sorcerer comes to try to stop him from speaking, and Paul boldly speaks against the sorcerer, and God blinds the sorcerer, and you know, Paul's able to share the gospel, and the man gets saved. Now there's a similar occurrence. Here's this group of religious leaders, and they're trying to stop Paul and Barnabas and to com- communicate the message of the gospel. And so let's see how they respond now that they've been challenged once again to ultimately stop what they're doing. Verse 46 says this, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set a light to the Gentiles that you should be for the salvation to the ends of the earth. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Paul and Barnabas, they're filled with boldness again. And this is a, a common theme you see, but they're, they're bold for God's word. You know, today I think we have a, a lack of that oftentimes in the church world. Where we're not willing to stand up boldly for the truth of God's word, stand up boldly against those who would attack it. And they say, no, no, we're going to stand up boldly for what's going on here. And they says, you know what, you guys rejecting Jesus... You just rejected the privilege. We came to you first as Jews to share this wonderful privilege that you have to receive eternal life, to receive salvation. And if you want to say that you're not worthy of it, fine. If you want to reject it, fine. But you know what? Paul goes, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. So you Jews have rejected the message. Not all of them, but a good percentage of them. Well, we're going to just focus on the Gentiles. We're going to share with them. And the Gentiles hear this news, and they're excited. They're pleased about it. Many, we're told, have been appointed to eternal life, believe, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. So they, they're glad, they're glorified the word of the Lord, and then a lot of them get saved, and you know, God does a great work there in that region. But... More persecution happens. We keep seeing kind of this back and forth. You know, they share, people accept it. You know, their, their religious leaders come to try to reject them, and they're bold with them, and more Gentiles get saved. But now these religious leaders aren't done with their persecution. Notice what takes place in verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. You know, whenever there is a revival among people, you can always be confident that Satan will be there seeking to destroy the work that God's doing, seeking to try to undermine the work that God's doing, seeking to come against the work that God's doing. And so we see all these Gentiles getting saved, and it shouldn't surprise us that now this Jewish opposition grows 
They get all these leaders in the area to come against Paul and Barnabas and do what? Get rid of them. You can't even be in our region, much less our city. We're pushing you out of here, and we're not going to allow you to continue to share this message. But Paul and Barnabas respond by shaking the dust off from their feet against them. Now, this is kind of an interesting gesture because Jews in the time of, of that time, if they were to go through a Gentile city, if they had to do that, when they left, they would shake the dust of that city off of their feet, kind of like, we don't want to take any of this you know, ungodly Gentile stuff with us as we go back uh, into Israel. And so by shaking off the dust in his feet, you know, they would recognize kind of the, the symbolism of that, of basically, I don't want to take anything with me of you Jesus-rejecting religionists. You know, hey, you guys want to reject? him fine we're going to move on and we're going to continue to proclaim this message to others who are willing to receive it and i think this is something good to remember you know because we're always going to have people that reject the gospel and ultimately they're rejecting jesus they're not rejecting you and don't let that just stop you from sharing with anyone else man i got rejected i must just be so horrible at this well i guess it's not my gifting not my call and so i won't share the gospel anymore and i've seen a lot of christians kind of get down because people reject the message but we should just say hey if you it's, it's up to you if you want to reject it okay but I'm going to keep sharing it because I know there are people who are open, who are ready, and the Lord's going to connect me with them. And some are going to reject, some are going to receive. You know, understand it's not your responsibility to cause someone to accept the gospel. It's your responsibility to communicate it. You see, we just understand that. It's, we think sometimes, well, it's my responsibility to make someone believe. No, it's not. That's totally on God. That's totally on the Holy Spirit preparing their heart. And then ultimately they have their own choice to make. All we're called to do is communicate the message. And then leave it with the Lord and leave it with them. Here it is. Now you can say, I challenge you to make a decision, but its decision is in their play, in court. Uh, and so don't think, oh man, this is my responsibility. No, your responsibility is just to communicate the message and leave it with the Lord in that individual. So now in verse four, uh, 52, we see that they leave because they were forced to. Uh, they go to Iconium and we're told the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And I think it's a great ending to this chapter because you think, man, filled with joy. They're just kicked out. They're just rejected. And this is something that I've mentioned many times. We need to understand, you know what, they're not filled with happiness because right now they're not happy. Their circumstances are unfortunate. They've got removed from a place where God was moving, but they can be filled with joy because joy isn't connected with our circumstances. We can have the joy of the Lord and what God is doing in our relationship with him despite what we go through. And it's so important because you're going to get rejected. You're going to get persecuted. You're going to have difficulty when you follow Jesus and you need to recognize you can still have the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength and it's something that we need to recognize that we have and it's not based on circumstances which is great because you can go through hardship like paul and barnabas did and yet be filled with joy and with the holy spirit so in these verses paul is presented with an opportunity a great opportunity to share with people who are open to god who are open to the bible and he's ready and he's willing and he stands up and he proclaims this great message where he shares three main things. First, preparation. All that God was doing through Israel's history was preparing them for the promised Messiah and Savior Jesus. And then he transitions from preparation to declaration, declaring the good news that Jesus, the Messiah, came and died for our sins on the cross. It's only through him that you can receive salvation and justification. And then he moves from declaration to application and challenges his listeners, are you willing to accept it? What are you going to do with Jesus and what he's done for you? 
You know, after the service today, some of us are going to be at Strawberry Park. Some of us are going to hopefully encounter people who are ready and open to God's word, open to these truths. And we're going to get to communicate, hopefully, a message very similar to this of what Jesus has done, the gospel truth, and then to offer them the opportunity to accept it. Let's close in prayer.